Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines the term Renaissance man as someone who has wide interests and is an expert in several areas. The discussion in the Missing Chapter classroom today is a man that certainly fits the bill. His knowledge in a variety of fields, combined with his humble beginnings, has given him a mind that many historians have called brilliant, inventive, and history-making. And that's for sure. And among the many, many inventions and solutions this man has conjured up in his genius mind, only one of them still carries his namesake, and it will change military history forever. Who was this man? What were some of these inventions? And what was the single invention that he's most known for? Listen in and be prepared to have your mind blown. Welcome to the missing chapter, everyone. Let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. Phil and I are sitting down to a Krispy Kreme donut coffee. We enjoyed this a couple of weeks ago. Original glazed donut. Very reminiscent of the donuts that Krispy Kreme uh, sells. We used to have a Krispy Kreme donut store near us, Phil, years ago. Yeah. Um, but now we just have to get it through fundraisers and things like that. But I really do miss the Krispy Kreme. It, and they had a deceivingly good coffee. They is really what this do. reminds yeah. me of. You know, we we used to go there all the time just for the donuts, and then realized the coffee was just as good as was equally as good. So. We were happy to have gotten this. Yeah, so thank you to Caroline Hammonds, who is a, a friend of ours and a listener of The Missing Chapter, for getting us this coffee. Um, I also wanted to figure out, too, there's got to be some sort of uh, demographic here of how many accidents were caused by the Krispy Kreme light. Yes. Because I know when you we know by one, the glow. Exactly. I know when, when we were in college, we had one right down the street. And, and as we're going down Erie Boulevard in Syracuse, um, we saw the Krispy Kreme light on. And what do you do? Oh yeah, slam on the brakes, you do screech a the tires, yeah. and get into the the driveway uh, and the drive through. So, yeah, and once that light is on, you go and you smell it. Oh my god, it's amazing. So you know, anyway, what, you know what was funny, Phil, is um, my wife Erin used to go to New York City pre-COVID quite often, and in Penn Station they still have a Krispy Kreme. Oh, nice donut store. Yeah. So God bless her. She would lug two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts for us <laughs> back on the train, all the way back from New York City to Albany. That's commitment. That's dedication. And it was, honestly, I looked forward to it every time, every (laughs) single time she went into the city. So, and then if she came back without them, I know it was like, well, what happened? It's great to see you, but where are the donuts? (laughs) So Phil, what do you have for us this week? All right. This one's a, this one's a fun one. Now I'm going to be a little coy at the very beginning. I'm going to describe this person Mm -hmm. uh, who was born in Sangersville, Maine in 1840. All right. So we're looking 19th century. So thinking you're historic minds, you know, what's going on in the 19th century um, and the years leading up to maybe the 20th century. 
All right. Um, because his impact that he's going to have in the mid 1800s is now going to make a very big military impact in the uh, 1900s in sure. the 20th century. So um, after the break, we'll, we'll disclose who this person is and, and the impact he makes. So you're going to make us wait a while. Maybe. I, I like it. Yeah, I like it. Build up the anticipation. Okay. All right. Um, so this man was raised by his poor father. He owned a sheep farm. Uh, he was tending sheep through his childhood and he didn't have much education. The only education that he had came from five years spent in a one-room schoolhouse, which at that time period wasn't all that um, out of the ordinary. But he learned basic skills, reading, writing. And at the age 14, he was apprenticed to a carriage maker. All right. Now, this is where some of his skills started to, to come forth. Um, he's working in a mouse-infested mill. And then he, I, this guy is so, so intriguing because... Some of the things he was faced with, it would be the last thing I would think of was mm -hmm. essentially the first thing he would think of. So for me, I would just leave the rat infested mill. For him, he showed signs of his ingenuity when he develops an automated mousetrap, hmm. a design that we still use today in common households. Okay. So following his service as an apprentice, he moves from job to job in search of places where he could apply as this inventive mind, right? So during this process, he creates unbelievable inventions as, as a teen. Um, a silicate blackboard. He was able to successfully patent his first invention in 1866 at 26 years old. Wow. The hair curling iron. Wow. All right. So he's got all this stuff going on in his mid-20s. And now from Wikipedia, and once again, it's Wikipedia, and they've gotten a little bit better by vetting some things. But so he was, it says, it was a long-time sufferer of bronchitis. So he patented and manufactured a pocket menthol inhaler and a larger, what they call, quote, pipe of peace, which is a steam inhaler using pine vapor that he claimed would relieve asthma uh, and hay fever, which I feel like I'm suffering from right now. Yeah. Um, but going back to some of these inventions, so a curling iron, he invented an apparatus for, I don't even know what this means, demagnetizing watches, magnoelectric machines, devices to prevent the rolling of ships, Islet and riveting machines, aircraft artillery, and an aerial torpedo gun. Oh, how about this? Coffee substitutes, various oil, steam, and gas engines. This so, kid. So things from like a curling iron yeah. to an early form of an inhaler yeah, to ideas on how to keep ships from capsizing and artillery shells. There's no limits. All There's over no the box that you, that's got, amazing. that you could put him in. And things that are still being used today. That, that's what's impressive. Too. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, any, anything from, from the military, like you mm -hmm. said, from household items to mousetraps. I mean, just right. all, all, these, over. All, all these designs all over the place. Um, so then he, he noticed that in a local uh, furniture factory, it kept on burning down and they couldn't figure out why. So they, they brought him in. I mean, let's, let's bring this guy and see if he can figure out why this is happening or at least prevent it from happening again. So... He was consulted, and as a result, he invented the first automatic fire sprinkler. Oh. It would douse the areas that were on fire. It would report the fire to the fire station. Pretty brilliant for that time period. Um, but he was unable to sell the idea elsewhere. But when the patent expired, the idea was used. All right? So he developed and installed the first electric lights in a New York City building, the Equitable Life Building in New York City at 120 Broadway in the late 1870s. So he's um, about 30, mid thirties at that point. Uh, and he was involved in several lengthy patent disputes with none other than Thomas Edison over this 
claim to the light bulb. One of these actions regarded the incandescent bulb for which he claimed that Edison was credited by means of better understanding of patenting law than he did. Wow. So essentially saying, hey, I had the technology. He, he knew the red tape better. Correct. Correct. So he claimed that an employee of his had falsely patented the invention under his own name and that Edison proved the employee's claim to be false, knowing that the patent law would mean uh, the invention would become public property, allowing hmm. Edison to manufacture the light bulb without crediting him as the true inventor. So this guy is, is just brilliant minded. All right. So he eventually moves on. He later invents a device that generates illuminating gas in locomotive headlights and eventually was hired as the chief engineer of the United States Electric Lighting Company. Um, in that position, he created a method of manufacturing carbon filaments. So, I mean, this guy is just all over the place. 1881, so he's, he's early 40s. He displays an electric pressure regulator at the Paris Exposition. All right, and this is something we got we to gotta mention here before the break. Representing the United States Electric Lighting Company. He was decorated by the French government for his work with electricity and the invention of the electric pressure regulator. Now, while he was at the exhibition, this is where the climax comes. An American man that he knew told him to let go of the electricity and chemical testing, let go of that dream, and that if he wanted to make a fortune, he should invent a machine that would help the Europeans kill each other. Now, kind of morbid. And you're like, what the heck? And he knew this guy. He knew this mm. guy from Vienna. So he says, all right, uh, I, I do, I do want to make some money off this. Uh, some of these, sorry, there's a little feedback there. Some of these um, items that he's invented, he never really made the fortune that he wanted. Hmm. Uh, some of the skills that he used, it was great for, you know, like that, that, that uh, fire department, but it, it, he could never sell it elsewhere. Right, right. So he was not making, this was not becoming lucrative. It was, a, it was just kind of a tinkering kind mm -hmm. of hobby, never really taking off, but it was this suggestion that stood with him. And it's this suggestion that's going to inspire him for the real adventure we're going to talk about after the break. All right, Phil, we're back from the break where I admitted to you, I don't even have a guess. I don't have a name on my radar to even throw at you. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the clue, and the quote unquote clue that you gave me didn't really help. I'm so <laughs> no, that's, that's my apologies. I, it's just my inability to even formulate um, or conjure up uh, even an idea as to who you're talking about. But I this was person, vague on purpose. I was vague on purpose. You were vague on purpose, but you were also like you're describing somebody who who we definitely should know. Yes, because I mean he has created an array of useful inventions. Correct. But obviously this one is the one that stands out, and it's also the one that kind of unlocked. Um, uh, some success in terms of, of money. Correct. So I'm interested to hear as to who it was and what direction you're taking us in. All right. So here, here we go. Um, remember before the break, for those of you that maybe fast forwarded through the, uh, the buildup and just want to get to the, to the answer. Here we go. After talking to that gentleman about making a fortune and inventing something that would help, you know, Europeans kill each other. Um, he kind of said, okay, maybe I'll take that and say, do I invent something that would maybe not just kill each other, but maybe kill each other more quickly to oh end fighting more rapidly? Because theoretically, if you could find something that would strike fear into somebody, maybe that would prevent war. Maybe it would prevent something from happening. Or at least if there is a conflict, end it quicker than have it drawn out and have, end up resulting in killing more people. Does right. that make weird? No, no it makes sense, total sense. Right? It's, it's like, you know, designing the guillotine 
Correct. To make capital punishment more humane. Correct. Right. Yep. So in that in that realm of like, okay, how do you do this humanely, I guess, mm-hmm. or more rapidly, he went back to the days of shooting guns with his father. And this is where he conjured up this memory as a young boy as he was firing a rifle. And it didn't say what the rifle was. I'm assuming maybe shotgun. He was tossed back by the recoil of the rifle and, it, and he landed on his butt. Now, in my basic mind, I would maybe think, all right, don't do that again. Or maybe I should wait until I'm a little bit older. Uh, or maybe have a better foot foundation, right. be ready and be taught more wisely. His mind says, there's recoil energy there mm. that could be used for something other than just you know bruising your shoulder. So that's when Sir Harem Maxim devised the automatic machine gun known as the Maxim machine gun. Oh, okay. It's Which precursor. makes total, yeah, yeah. Th- this makes total sense now. Okay. It's precursor. The Gatling gun was a mm. hand-driven crank-operated gun mm-hmm. with at first six, but then later on 10 barrels and a maximum firing rate of 1,200 rounds per minute. But it was a magazine mounted on top of the gun. It fed bullets via gravity, but it jammed easily because of that, that de- uh, development and that design. And it was crank operated. So you had to consider the soldiers, you know, tiring easily. Correct. Especially amidst a fierce battle. So Maxim's innovation was to harness that recoil power of each bullet, a force that was strong enough to eject the used cartridge and draw in the next one. Pretty brilliant. It is pretty brilliant. And, And, you know, this guy, obviously, he's proven to have a mind that just functions not like a regular, ordinary individual like you and me, Phil. Like, Correct. So to t- your description there of using the recoil energy to actually advance that weapon yes, would never even cross my mind. Right. And, you know, you don't have to worry about electronics or anything like that. It's just it's it's already the energy is, is there. Right. And he's looking at this as unused, untapped mm-hmm. energy, uh, which I think is, once again, brilliant. So if, if he structures this gun in this way, the portable gun needed only one barrel to fire all of its bullets automatically, which is a stark difference than the Gatling gun. So to maximize the gun's effectiveness, Maxim also developed his own smokeless powder called Cordite. Hmm. In 1884, he founded the Maxim Gun Company in Britain to produce his next, uh, to, to produce his new weapon. Five years later, he licensed it to the British Army in 1889. The following year, the Austrian, German, Italian, Swiss, and Russian armies also incorporated into their firearm arsenal. Now, in 1896, the Maxim Gun Company is bought out by Vickers LTD, very popular name, especially in World War I. Uh, Maxim will eventually become a director of this. Now, the Vickers machine gun would become standard issue uh, for the British Army during World War I, which we tell all of our students, hey, it's the war to end all wars. One of the, the biggest technological pieces is the machine gun. It's considered the machine gun war, right. and it was all because of this guy. Now, with Maxim being the brilliant-minded man that he is, he eventually receives, ready for this, 122 United States patents and 149 British patents. And his life isn't, isn't just ending with a machine gun. Later in life, he turns his attention from warfare to flight. Now, bouncing all over the place, um, you know, from mouse traps to curling irons to a machine gun, he now takes his talents and, and tries to build an airship, which is, how do you go from one to the other? I don't understand. Well, he's been all over the, the, the board throughout his entire career. Correct. I mean, there's no one area he kind of focuses on. It's just wherever his 
kind of creative juice is taken. Yeah. And you know, what's weird about this too, is that he has a goal of, of flight, but he starts to build an airship just to study lift mm. uh, and thrust of various wing shapes, propellers, but he really didn't develop a method for controlling it. Mm. So he's trying to figure out how can I get lift? Um, what kind of thrust can I use for with, with different types of propellers? But I don't know how to control this thing. Right. All right? So he starts to um, you know, tinker again. He did use a very incredibly heavy steam-propelled machine. And it proved that there was, I don't know, flight possible, mechanical flight mm. with heavy machinery. So that is, it's there. It's, I don't know if it's patentable yet, but he's he's got something. Mm -hmm. Now, he's unable to achieve sustained flight. So once again, my brain, I would probably have just called it quits. Yep. He used this inventive mind and realized that all the work he did should be put to some sort of use and not waste a mistake. So he made it, ready for this, into an amusement park ride. It's called the Captive Flying Machine. It became a staple of British fairgrounds, which is, once again, all of these things that he did, whether it was mistakes or not, he never wasted a single thing. Right. It right. was always something that he had uh, around the shop. It was always something that you know, it was a problem that he was trying to solve. He was just such an inventive mind um, and a, an amazing, brilliant problem solver. Now, he dies November 24th, 1916. Now, we know that time period. You're, you're talking the middle of, of World War One. Now, this is only days before, which I think this is the irony of the whole thing. Only days before the Battle of the Somme, where over one million soldiers fell in four months of what? Machine gun warfare. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.